Good morning. My name is Art. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand and uh, somebody will get you one in just a, just a second. Two of the most dangerous words we can think or speak. If only. If only I had a car like my neighbor Jerry drives. If only my kids got along like the Jones kids seemed to get along. If only I could get married or divorced. If only I could make 10K more a year. If only I, if only I could get that promotion that instead of Bill or Joan getting it. If only my wife was as hot as... If only my husband understood me as well as Phil understands me. Those are dangerous, potentially lethal words, if only. And there's no end to the landscape of our if onlys. It's called coveting. And the scary part is that we, if we took a vote on the most dangerous sin of the Big Ten that we've been looking at for a number of weeks, it may very well end up toward the bottom of the list. Let's read it together, our catechism question for the morning. What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. The scripture is Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then it is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And here's a little difference in it, and we'll point that out. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. We live in the, uh, we live in the most advanced generation uh, ever known. We enjoy inventions that your grandparents, and by the way, that's me, <laughs> never imagined. Um, no generation has ever had what we have. If having more could make people happy, we ought to be the happiest people ever, right? And we're just not. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of really unhappy people in life. First, those who have realized they're never going to get what they most want, so they give up, get bitter, and turn cynical. The other are those people who got what they most want, they're now still dissatisfied, so they want more. And I think most of us sort of live in the middle ground between those two, never quite having gotten it, but still thinking it's possible. Because even though, if only, usually simply whispers to us, it's relentless. C.S. Lewis wrote, envy, if only, his word is envy, is insatiable. The more you concede to it, the more it will demand. So I've got three questions this morning. I'm more 
true to what preaching is than Matt. He had five last week. I, I have three. I was overwhelmed last week, Matt, when I was... Three questions. What is coveting? Why is the 10th commandment the 10th commandment? And what is the antidote to coveting? So first, what is coveting? Let's go back to the Deuteronomy 5 verse. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, that Hebrew word, covet, means to desire, to wish for, to to crave or to long for. Uh, Usually sparked by something that we see. You know, from that childhood want of you just having to have the doll that your sister is playing with to the adult want of the house that your friend just bought. It's not yours, but you want it. But this verse uses another word to describe the same thing. It goes on and says, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, etc. And set your desire on describes, quote, a desire that springs from the depths of one's very being and implies desiring excessively. So while coveting is usually sparked externally from the things that we see, setting our desire on things is sparked internally from our hearts. So at its root, now catch this, at its root in this context, coveting is setting our hearts on things that God hasn't given us or that he says are sin. In other contexts, hear me, in other contexts, The same words are used to describe positive desires. So it all depends on the context. That'll become important later in the message. We break this commandment whenever we crave a physically attractive member of the opposite sex. We break this commandment when we suddenly must have iPhone 7 because iPhone 6 isn't quite good enough. Uh, we, we break this commandment when, when we, we make a poor financial judgment to get the latest model car with its newer bells and whistles and a little bit more horsepower and a little bit more torque. And I know of what I speak. Uh, I have a great truck. And I know that because some of you have coveted it. I've watched it. <laughs> I've I've seen it in your eyes. But it's six years old. And a couple of months ago, just for fun, I Googled the 2017 version of my truck. Oh, my. Mine suddenly looked like a relic of the past ages. It was incredible. Cameras everywhere on on this truck. New, really valuable safety features that I don't have on, on mine all of which could be so helpful for the way that we use my truck. And I could go on and on about having it would be kind of like a transportation new birth experience for me. But wisdom prevailed. Her name is Jan. I'm actually kidding about that because uh, I didn't even tell her about that until last night because I knew... I knew it was better from her to hear, her to hear it last night from me than to hear it first time in the message this morning. Um, that's much beneficial to our marriage to do it that way. It was God who prevailed. And he just reminded me that there was only one new birth experience. <clears throat> so I needed to just sort of pull up my big boy panties and get on with real life. <laughs> so why is coveting so prevalent? Let's go right back to the second time it ever happened. Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn there. Genesis chapter 3. Easy to find. First book of the Bible, third chapter. No problem. 
I'm going to start reading chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This again is the word of the Lord. Did you notice a progressive pattern here? Step one. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Step two. And that the tree was to be desired, it's the same word, coveted, to make one wise. Step three, she then took of its fruit and ate. Step four, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Step five, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Saw, desired, coveted, took, knew it bad, hid. See, on the internet, <laughs> I saw the new 2017 Chevrolet Silverado LTZ 3500 heavy-duty four-wheel drive dually in, in any color I wanted. And besides, you know what? The guy behind the wheel in the picture looked just like me. <laughs> I'm just saying. See, once Satan showed Eve something she didn't have and convinced her she needed it, she was toast. And once she had gone from desire to deed, they knew they had blown it, and they hid from God. Coveting was the very first human sin. Listening to Satan speak was not the sin. That happened to Jesus when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, remember? Remember? What we do with what he says is the issue. Martin Luther said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can sure keep them from building nests in your hair. Can you imagine how awesome Edom was? Perfection and freedom. Minus only one tree. Adam and Eve being vulnerable to wanting more than they already had is sort of a chilling thought for us because it assures us that those of us who live east of Eden today are equally vulnerable. Genesis 3 is just as alive and well today on March 26, 2017 as it has ever been. Nothing has changed. Why? If you caught, I said this was the second ever example of coveting. What was the first one? Satan. You can always count on Jay to answer the questions. <laughs> Satan, yes. 
He had it all. He was one of the most gifted and beautiful of the angels that God had created. But he saw he wasn't like God, and he wanted and coveted that position, so he rebelled, and the rest is history. And what came naturally for him comes naturally for us as well, and he has exploited that strategy ever since. Remember the story of Achan in the book of Joshua? God had instructed the Israelites to not carry away any treasures from the city of Jericho once they had conquered Jericho. But a guy named Achan couldn't keep his hand off some of this stuff. And as a result, God let them lose the next battle against Ai to teach them a lesson. And when Achan was found out, we read this in the book of Joshua chapter 7. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw... Among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Do you see the pattern? Saw, coveted, took, and he knew it, so he therefore hid it. What about Bathsheba? Uh, David with, with Bathsheba, he saw her bathing, looking down, desired her, coveted her, saw she was a beautiful woman, actually sent somebody, he said, find out who that is, I want to know who that woman is. Then he took her, had sex with her, and got her pregnant, and then he knew that he had done wrong, so he tried to cover it up by getting her husband to come home and have sex with her, so that it would look like he was the father, but he refused to do that, so he said, okay, I need to put Uriah, the husband, in, in the front, front of the battle line so he gets killed to cover this up, and he did that. And then David hid. In Psalm 32, he says this, when I kept silent, hid, my bones wasted away. And he did that for 11 months before Nathan approached him. Sort of eerie, isn't it? Think, think Judas. Think Rachel. Think anybody else in the scripture. It's, it's that same. Think you. It's that same pattern. We see something that we desire and we falsely believe that in some way, even if it seems sort of far-fetched, it's going to make us happy, and it's going to meet the need that we dream it will satisfy. If we cover social, covet social standing of some kind, we might have the idea of taking down another's reputation a bit to raise ours up a bit more. We tend to think of coveting only in the area of sex, right? But it is, it is all across the landscape. If we covet money and possessions, many of us begin to hold back what we give back to God, and I know that there are many of us in this room this morning that are doing that. Rather than giving back to God what is his, we keep it so we can spend it on ourselves. We can take joy from another person by failing to be able to rejoice with them because we're envious of what they have. So we can't enter into their joy because we want what they have. What we desire matters. It overflows into our actions. Coveting may, be, may prove to be the station from which we catch the train to theft and adultery and gossip and lying and all these other blanks that we could fill in. And the disastrous irony is that what we hope will bring satisfaction actually in the end brings great loss. Think Eve. Think Achan. Think David. Think Judas. 
But now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, all desires are not bad, right? Right, they're not. In fact, Christianity says that desire is, a, is good because God created us that way with desires and filled the world with good things for us to desire and to enjoy. It's good to desire beautiful weather. I mean, aren't you loving this now? Except for the pine pollen. It's, it's great to desire attractive clothing, to be able to look nice in that. It's, it's, it's great to desire mouth-watering food or an intimate relationship within marriage with your wife or, or a meaningful achievement of some kind or, or fulfilling contributions that you can make to the world that maybe somebody else can't make. And the list just goes on and on. We are not Buddhists who must annihilate all of our desires to reach karma. The problem isn't our desires. It's our desires for the wrong things. And I think we can sort of summarize all of that with, with categorize, categorizing maybe three illegitimate type desires. Number one is the desires that, uh, that God calls sin, like uh, desiring your neighbor's wife. No-brainer, right? I mean, I hope we can all agree on that very easily. Secondly, those that God does not call sin but are illegitimate for you right now for reasons that only he may know. Uh, maybe you really like that new, this is exaggeration, 17-door, 70-cubic-foot refrigerator that your neighbor just had crane lifted into her kitchen. And you think, if only. Now, is that coveting? It's a little different from wanting your neighbor's wife or husband, right? You could actually go out and buy that fridge uh, for yourself without taking it away from your neighbor. So is, is that okay? Or is that still coveting? Well, here's the answer we don't like. It depends. It, it's like my truck deal. Does God want me to have that truck right now? Would God want you to have that fridge right now? Only you and he can determine that. And it could, be, it could be that he'd be fine with you getting that fridge next year. Or maybe never, which I'm sure is the deal with my truck. Never. But this whole process sort of stinks, doesn't it? Because just give me a simple yes or no, God. But he wants us to work through decisions like that and learn and grow because he knows that next week there'll be something coming down the pike that's going to make the fridge deal look like child's play. And that takes us to the third possible illegitimate desire. Those things that God does not call sin and therefore are legitimate in and of themselves, but that I desire so strongly that I forget about God in the process. Here's an acid test. Has my desire, my desire become so strong that I believe that my happiness depends on the acquisition of that which I am desiring? Because if that is true, I won't even stop to talk to God about it. I think Jan and I have purchased a lot of things that way that later just brought us grief. A new house may be fine and necessary for my family, but if I begin to think that it will make me and my family happy or happier, I'd better check the signals because there's probably a train wreck coming. 
A new car may be a security for your wife, guys, because the old one breaks down and it's really small and she'd like to have a little bigger car for safety. And that may be fine, but if it becomes her or your source of security, it's coveting. The moment I start thinking, if only, and then tie that to increased happiness or security or enjoyment in life, I've crossed the line into coveting. And then um, you and I had better get some help checking our desires out because we are highly trained self-deceivers. That's what I love so much about the potential of our community groups. I don't know if it's happening in yours, but that kind of thing happens in ours. And it is, it's such a safety factor. In the Screwtape Letters at C.S. Lewis, Screwtape, the demon tutor, wrote to his pupil, Wormwood, this, God made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one all we can do is to encourage the humans to take and use the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. See, it, without thinking, it's so easy for me to live according to the philosophy of empiricism. You know, boiled down. Uh, empiricism says, if I can't see it, touch it, touch it, taste it, hear it, or smell it, it either doesn't exist or it cannot be known. So it all makes sense. If I think a new car is going to make me happy, I'm going to go get it because I can see it. I can touch it. And it seems so more, it's so more realistic than, than trusting God to make me happy without the car. Or if I think an affair will fill a sexual and emotional void in my life, I'll do it because that will be much more tangible than waiting for Jesus to fill that void somehow. If I think taking credit for things will make me feel more important and fulfilled, I'll do it because hearing compliments from a real-life person like one of you is much more concrete than waiting in secret for God to give me those same feelings of importance and fulfillment. You know, there's a quote I'm sure most of us in here have heard from, from C.S. Lewis. It says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That is a great quote, and you, some of you have heard that dozens of times. It's even better when it's quoted in context. Listen to this. The Christian says, this is Lewis, <clears throat> creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, and the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or image. I must keep myself 
I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Lewis is saying, if I find by using my senses that nothing here satisfies some of these desires I have, the only logical conclusion is that I was created for something more than I can get in this world. And I just want to say that the arrival of Jesus Christ solves what haunts your and my heart. The hauntings of desire that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world can only be satisfied by and through him. That's it. That's the bottom line. So, why is the commandment the 10th commandment? I mean, I mean, you get to it and you kind of expect this big moral crescendo at the end, end of the big tent to sort of cap it off. But all it says is don't covet. I mean, we've already had adultery. We've had theft. We've had murder. This sort of feels anticlimactic, doesn't it? So why is it that God leaves us with this one? Think back to last week when Matt was talking about lying. Among other things a lot of other things that he said, which, by the way, were pretty uncomfortable to hear, frankly. Um, he said this, we deceitfully blame being late to a meeting on the traffic because we want to protect our reputation and what people think about us. Remember that? What is that? That's coveting. Coveting a certain way I want to be perceived. And I will lie to protect it. What's adultery? It's coveting a certain relationship that I really want because I think it will make me happy. Nobody commits adultery because they think it's going to be the worst experience they've ever had. What is stealing? It's coveting. It's coveting what someone else has that I want for myself or that I want to get to be able to sell and make money for myself. So why is the 10th commandment the 10th commandment? Because I think it gets at the root, it gets at the heart of the other nine commandments. We break the other nine because we covet or excessively desire something we do not have. We don't inflate our business expenses on Form 1040 Schedule A just to have fun. We lie on that form because we covet the money it will put in our bank account rather than the government's account. We don't decide someday to just worship another God because we're bored. We do that because we covet something from it that we don't believe God wants to, can, or will give us. So we get another God. You do that. And I do that very, very slyly and slickly. But we do that. You see how all-encompassing coveting is? That's, that's one reason it's number 10. I think the, another, another reason is this. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the prohibition of idolatry. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. Do you know what Paul calls coveting? Ephesians 5. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Numbers 1 and 10 are saying exactly the same thing. Do not commit idolatry. They bookend the Ten Commandments. Number one expresses it vertically in our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. And number 10 spreads it out horizontally so that we know what idolatry looks like through the channel of coveting. And here's the kicker. Both idolatry and coveting are invisible to begin with. We can see commandments 2 through 9 being broken. But only God can see numbers 1 and 10 before they break out into visible actions. Because only God can look at the heart. The place that Jesus says, Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. You know, it's hard to change a behavior, right? But, but, but we can do that by tightening up our bootstraps and just kind of gutting it out. And we can look like we've won the battle. But here's where Jesus' words nail us again, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, coveting, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So before the action is shown, the sin's already committed. So you can actually keep yourself from getting in bed with your neighbor's wife, but commit adultery all day long because of coveting. And it's invisible before it becomes visible. It's an inner attitude before it becomes an outer action. And that which is inner and invisible is coveting and it's sin. Sometimes we tend to think, if I don't do it, it won't be sin. This commandment does not allow us to go there. That's why I think Psalm 139 is such an apropos prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Not my actions, my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, not what I do, what I think. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's why 10 is 10. Now, what's the antidote to coveting? Man, I really struggled with this one in my prep this week. My first answer was uh, to the antidote question was contentment, because obviously if I'm content, I'm going to be far less drawn to coveting. Uh, second thought was gratitude. If I'm grateful for what God has given me, I'm going to be much less susceptible to thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. My third thought was generosity. Uh, if I become the kind of person who thinks more about giving than, giving than getting, uh, coveting will probably take a pretty good hit in my life. My th fourth thought was uh, guarding my heart. Uh, since coveting originates in the heart, then obviously guarding it would be a, a great antidote. I just couldn't get any traction on any of those as, as much as I wanted to because they're all true, right? They're, they're, and they're all so helpful thoughts. I just couldn't get any traction. It seemed like I could... It seemed like I would be able to work up generosity um, and even work up appearing grateful and content 
but not yet get to the heart of the issue and still inside be discontent and is, inside not liking that I'm giving stuff away and, and all that sort of thing? So I stepped back and I looked for something that sort of brought all these together and here's what I came up with. The antidote to coveting sinfully is to covet righteously the only thing that will bring us victory. So here's my antidote to coveting. Covet Jesus. Now, some of you may still be hung up on the word that covet always means bad. So, so if you can't use that word, that, that's so fine. Desire Jesus. Long for Jesus. Hanker for Jesus. Desire excessively for Jesus. Press hard after Jesus. Crave Jesus. Thirst for Jesus. Set your sights on Jesus. Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's saying, crave Jesus. Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Covet Jesus. You know, life's a paradox. You, you, you crave for comfort, we usually find misery. We, we crave love, we many times find loneliness. We, we crave significance, many times we find uh, rejection instead. But the scriptures are clear. If we crave Jesus... Along the way, you're going to find comfort and love and significance thrown in. He will be able to be all of that to you. And he might even throw in some of the things that you've desired if they were not, in essence, illegitimate. Because now they're in their right place. They're simply good gifts from your Heavenly Father to enjoy, but not to idolize. Um, Remember we read at the beginning of the service? Thanks, Joel, for having us read Psalm 23 out loud. That first line, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. That's what it is, right? C.S. Lewis says, in life there is the first thing, God, and then there are the second things, everything else. If we keep the first things, we'll also enjoy the second things. But if we put second things first, we'll not only lose the first thing, but also come to be disappointed by and even hate the second things. Psalm 73 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm going to skip over a couple of verses. I don't know how God will lead you to, to covet, to crave, to, to long for Jesus. I don't know how he'll do that. But this I do know. If you really want to know, he'll show you. Uh, I, I got kind of squeamish even with this application because it seems sort of general. It seems sort of of a way out there, and, and I know that it is. But what would happen if, if each of us in the room this morning took the next 30 days to pray each day and say, Lord, 
how do I learn to crave you more than I do now? Because we can be sure that he wants us to know how to do that more than we want to know how to do that. That's it. We're at the end of the Ten Commandments. So what do these commandments uh, reveal about your heart? The answer is pretty obvious, right? Uh, unless you want to break number nine and lie about it. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. You have to admit, when we get to the end of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's not a very pretty picture. There's, there's just no way to wiggle out of it. None of us can look in the mirror of God's law and feel good about ourselves. Not if we're honest. Makes us painfully aware of the fact that we are, we're simply lawbreakers. And you know, the original audience uh, felt the same way. Immediately after the Tenth Commandment, here's what we read in Exodus. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They were shaking in their sandals. They had seen the holiness of God and were overwhelmed by the difference between him and them, and they didn't want to have anything to do with him face to face. They would rather have Moses sacrifice himself as a mediator and take the laser beam of God's holiness in their place. And Moses was a great guy. He was a great leader, but he he couldn't do that. He had sin of his own. In fact, he wasn't even going to be able to go into the promised land because of his sin. And we need exactly what what they felt they needed is someone to stand between. When When we come to the realization of the overwhelming and devastating description of the holiness of God in these Ten Commandments, we realize that we stand totally condemned by the law. And there's not one thing we can do about it. But again this morning, um, I have the privilege of proclaiming the good news that obliterates the bad news. What the Israelites and we were totally incapable of doing for ourselves, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did for us. Please, please, don't ever let, don't ever let the truth of that good news go stale in your heart. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. He kept the law perfectly and then completed the exchange, he for me, by dying as a lawbreaker in my place. That is the only reason that we can be accepted by God into his family for eternity instead of going to hell with Satan's family for eternity. Theologian B.B. Warfield wrote this, 
There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relationship to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. The law is bad news. The gospel is the good news. And frankly, I personally find it healthy from time to time to have to soak in the reality and the realization of the bad news. Of standing between, before the, the bar of God's holy law and realize that I can only be judged guilty on that basis. The evidence is overwhelmingly one-sided. The verdict is guilty as charged. And the sentence is eternal capital punishment. That, my friends, would have been justice. Pure justice. But God drew from that deep well of his wisdom and grace and love a different just plan, Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 3, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the good news. Paul, same thing. For our sake, 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ alone our hope is found, no place else. I'm going to close with a uh, somewhat lengthy quote, but it is, it's beautiful, Spurgeon. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus, but Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. 
Do not let your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail you. Covet Jesus. Again, for the next 30 days, will you decide to ask God, how do I learn to covet you more? Father, um, thank you for the law. As Paul said, I would not have known some things that weren't, be, weren't for the law, and that is so true. Uh, but it's devastating. But thank you that that's not the end of the story. Thank you that for us there, there is life, there is hope because of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that each one here will begin in a new way to experience that um, over these next 30 days. And I pray that in his name. Amen. Just a second, think back to the Garden of Eden with me. Uh, after Eve saw, desired, took, knew, and hid, it says, uh, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And after some dialogue between them, we read this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And we can come to the table this morning because that is what he has done and continues to do for you and for me. We were and still are lawbreakers. But when that happens, he comes looking for us. And he says, where are you? And then reminds us that he's wrapped us in a skin also. Not the skin of a lamb, but the skin of the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if that's your spiritual clothing this morning, this table is for you. Because when you come, he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his son, the lamb of God. But if you're here this morning, I need to talk to you. If you are still spiritually naked and hiding from him this morning, please know that he is calling, where are you? And he's saying, I have a skin for you as well. The skin of the lamb whom I sent to earth to be sacrificed for you, that you too can be justified by my grace and not anything you do. So that when he looks at you, he will be able to see the righteousness of his son. So if that is you this morning, and you want to be changed, I invite you to come with the rest of us to this table to confess your sin, to believe in him, and to receive his clothing for your spiritual nakedness. The table is open.